Hey, well, thanks again for being here with us this morning, especially if you are a part of our VBS week. Thanks for, uh, again, entrusting us with your kiddos. We hope it was a great week. The, uh, the energy, the passion, uh, the care, the resources that we poured into this week is not just VBS week. I mean, we take children's ministry very seriously here at West Bowles, and our hope is truly to raise up the next generation for Christ. It's not just child care here at West Bowles. It's children's ministry because they are called to ministry. They are a part of this ministry. And so if you join us every single week, hopefully you experience that same excitement and that same growth and development. But again, thanks to all who were involved. It was so cool, church, I kid you not, to see some of those teens pouring in to the little ones. I mean, there was just nothing quite like that. It got my heart so, so excited, so filled, loved it. Hey, this morning I'm excited to be continuing our uh, summer sermon series entitled Numbers, hashtag but not numbers. Uh, in the series, we are looking not so much at the book of numbers that's in the Bible, although we should do a study on that sometime just to prove to you that we could. Uh, we're not looking at the symbolic numbers that are found throughout the Bible, even though we could do a study on that and be pretty powerful. Uh, we're actually looking at those little number combinations known as chapters and verses, those little address marks, if you will, those little bookmarks that have proven over the years to be very important to many of us. These aren't just numbers, but they are truths, are they not? They are signposts. They are pointers to things that have uh, revived our spirits and, and resurrected our souls over the years, right? 1, 1, 29, 11, 3, 16, 8, 28. These number combinations are so powerful because they point to truth that is so powerful. And uh, I'm grateful to Eric last week. Eric Jacobson did a great job unpacking for us the numbers 829. It was super cool to hear him up there. And this morning, I'm excited to unpack for you the numbers 2, 4, and 2, 5. And, uh, and Charity Kettle, Charity, you got it. Come on up. She won the Chick-fil-A gift card this week. She guessed correctly. Last week, I got to go to Chick-fil-A because nobody guessed. Here's proof. Me and a little cameo with my friend there. Charity, that'll be you this week. All right, so <laughs> congratulations. Awesome. All right. Tell him I said hi. Darn it. I like to stump you guys because I like free lunch at Chick-fil-A. But anyway, but she guessed it, so I'm appreciative of that. Uh, but I'm excited. Let me unpack for you and explain kind of what I'm thinking when it comes to the numbers 2, 4, and 2, 5. Uh, there are a lot of words out there, if you think about it, that are unique to particular cultures, to particular countries. Uh, gigil is a word used in the Philippines to describe the overwhelming urge people have to squeeze or pinch something cute. We just call that grandma. Right, kind of the same, same thing. Uh, Jayus is a word used in Indonesia to describe a joke so poorly told you can't help but laugh. We have a word for that too. Ryan Long, our minister of <laughs> congregational care. Kiyudeori uh, is a Japanese word which means to eat yourself into bankruptcy. I was really struggling trying to figure out what our equivalent would be, then it hit me. Cheesecake factory. Oh yeah, that's, that's it. So there are words that are unique to different countries, different cultures. There are also words that are unique to different parts of our country, right? There are subcultures that have their own lingo. In New England, they call water fountains bubblers. They call uh, sub-sandwiches grinders. And they also call cheating okay. I mean, that's just, like, what? Did you get that? Okay, all right, all right. Just making sure you're awake, y'all. Come on. Uh, speaking of y'all, right, uh, in the South you say y'all, here you say you all, but you know in the Mid-Atlantic you say yous. So we say that differently. Um, in Ohio and Kentucky they call a ski cap a toboggan, kind of interesting, don't put a toboggan on your head out here, that might hurt, right? So there are different parts of our culture that have different words. And what's true for different countries, what's true for different cultures, what's true for different subcultures is also true for Christianity, there are certain words that are unique to our faith. 
that really only we have and use and understand. And that list is long, but there's one word this morning that I really want to focus on, that I really want to unpack together, and that word is grace. Now that word itself, it's not new to us. It's not all that unfamiliar to us. I mean, many of us say grace before a meal, right? Someone who is a beautiful dancer, we say, is graceful. And this week at VBS, the cafeteria lady was named Grace. I mean, we know grace, right? We know grace. But that word, and more importantly, what God wants us to think and feel when we hear that word, I think that has been lost over the ages. And we have to reclaim it. Because grace is amazing grace. And yet I'm not sure many of us believe that to be true. So we need to get back to what made it so amazing. That brings us to our numbers for the morning, 2, 4, and 2, 5. Ephesians 2, 4, and 2, 5. Let me read those verses in context. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everybody else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because, again, we're united with Christ. So God can now point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. See, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. See, of all the words that are unique to Christianity, of all the words that, that explain what we're all about, grace is it. Grace says it all. And these verses are seeped in grace. Now let's make sure we're all on the same page here before we move forward. Grace is defined simply in this way. It is God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Grace means that God is good to us even though we aren't good to him. God is good to us even though we aren't good to each other. God is good to us even though we aren't very good with his creation. See, grace means that we don't get what we deserve. In fact, we get the opposite of what we deserve in the most positive of ways. Let's go through this verse again, these nine or ten verses, unpacking them, trying to make sense of them. So back to verses one through three. It starts off with some pretty bad news. Right, it says in these verses that every single one of us, all of us, were dead. Right, Without exception, we were dead in our sins. In other words, every single one of us experiences what I call the Adam and Eve ailment the Adam and Eve syndrome, right? Just like them, we at one level or another and in one way or another, we rejected God. We, we disregarded his commands. We kind of disobeyed his laws. We, uh, we just, just didn't really respect him. And so we allowed selfish and, and sinful and short-sighted passions and desires, this sinful nature that this text talks about. We let those control us. And just look around for proof that everybody falls into that category. The evening news shows us that every ism, right, uh, materialism, sexism, racism, every negative type of schism there is in this world, it's because we're all sick in this way. We all have this inclination towards sin. We all have the Adam ailment. And the problem's not just out there. That problem, it's, it's in here. But more than that, that problem's right here. That Adam ailment goes deep in all of us. 
And the problem with that ailment, well, there's a lot of problems, but the main one is, and I hate to tell you this, it's terminal. You see that condition, it kills. It kills your hopes, your dreams, your spirit, your soul, your connection to God, your connection to others, and it ultimately one day will kill you. And according to Paul, those of us who live this way, those of us who have the ailment, we're as good as dead already. We're the walking dead. Sin has destroyed us. So according to Paul, you and I, we don't just do stupid things from time to time. You and I don't just struggle with something in one form or another. You and I just aren't having a bad day or a bad week or or a bad year for that matter. You and I are literally dead in our sins. We're literally uh, spiritual roadkill out on the street. I wanted to find a picture of a cat dead in the street, but, you know, I just decided not to. Sorry, sorry, bad joke. Look at the Heaven series, inside joke. Anyway. Here's the thing, though, our disobedience, our distrust, our our disrespect of God, there's no other way to say it, it was our death sentence. That moment when that happened, death came in. Everything was separated. Everything good was torn apart. And as a result of that, right, God now, it says, is is somewhat angry. It says we were subject, I'm going to try to use my cool new tool here, subject to God's anger. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about, church. Come on. Look, I can do this too. Ooh, oh, oh, eat, whoop, whoop. Yes. Ur. You never knew about Ur, did you? I messed up. Okay. So because we were, we were subject to God's anger, that didn't mean things were going to turn out too well for us. But before we go on, it's, it's easy to say, well, why would God be angry at us? How can a loving God be angry at us for this? Well, guys, it's not, it's not that hard to understand. If you destroyed my stuff... If you disregarded my love, if you ignored my gifts, if you abused my kids, if you broke my trust, if you spat in my face, I'd be angry with you too. And that's what we did, spiritually speaking, towards the Lord. And that's why he has every right now to be angry. He has every right to throw us out, to kick us out, to to lock us out. He has every right to punish us, to bury us, to destroy us. We made a mess of things, man. The Adam ailment is in all of us, and all of us have made a mess of things. But in verse 4 of this chapter, the the tone changes completely because the author's focus changes completely. It starts off talking about the gross things that we have all done, but then it moves to the great thing that only God could have done. Verses 1 through 3 say, you are worse off than you could have ever ever hoped, but don't worry, verse 4 says, there is hope. But God is so rich in mercy, the text says, and he loved us so much That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Read that passage aloud with me. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Now, i I got to make sure you get this. We were dead, but God, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it, made us alive in Christ. We were nothing but but empty shells and shadows, but God, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it, filled us with his spirit. We were without hope, but God, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it, gave us heaven. We were spiritually bankrupt, but God, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it, gave us all the riches of the next life. We were worse off than we could have ever imagined. But because of grace and grace alone, we now have it better than we can even imagine. 
We like to think of it in this way. We like to think that God came down to just clean us up a little bit, right? God came down to wipe the crumbs off our face and to, and to get that piece of spinach out of your teeth. Like, oh, you're a pretty good guy, but there's a couple little problems. Let me just fix that for you. The text says we were dead. We were as good as dead. Nothing good was in us. And so God did a lot more than just clean us up a little bit. He united us with Christ. We went from being dead and this roadkill in the middle of the street. Uh, we were alone. We were abandoned. We went from all of that to being alive and adopted and adored and adorned by the king. Went from eternal pain and punishment to eternal paradise. Went from recipients of God's anger to recipients of God's affection. Everybody say grace. Okay, everybody say grace. That's why that's true. It's because of grace. That's why Paul says what he does in the next verse. Right, verse seven says, the incredible wealth. I'm gonna do this again because it's just so cool. The incredible wealth of his grace. This isn't any beady, little, tiny, little bit of help grace, give you a hand out or, or a hand up or, or give you some money on occasion kind of grace. This is change your life, change your eternal destination, change you forever kind of grace. This is the incredible depth of God's wealth. The wealth of his grace. It is so big, so good, so unbelievable. You were dead and now you have everything. Why? Because of grace. Maybe this analogy will help. I've shared it with you before, but, but it fits perfectly here. If you are punished and the judge forces you to pay a really expensive speeding ticket, well, that's, that's justice, right? You got what you deserved. If the judge lets you walk free, that's mercy. You, you didn't get what you deserved. But if he tears up your ticket, hands you a huge wad of cash, along with the keys to his car, the gate, go to, gate, gate code to his house, and if he asks you if you want to marry his 25-year-old smoking hot wife, not wife, daughter, awkward, <laughs> he just throws everything at you that he's got, including his wife. If in addition to throwing all this stuff at you, he also says, and guess what, you will never be found guilty of anything ever again, I can personally guarantee it. If you get all of that, that's grace. Because you didn't get what you deserve, you got what you didn't deserve in the most positive of ways. You with me? That's grace. That's the incredible wealth of his grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. That's why Jesus talked about it all of the time. He demonstrated it, he personified it, he exemplified it all of the time. Grace is the distinguished father publicly humiliating himself to run after and to embrace the prodigal son who made a mess of his life, who squandered the entire family inheritance. And this dad goes running in his great robe and there's no, I hope you figured it out, boy. Yeah, I knew you'd come running home. There's just embrace, there's just love, there's just grace. And a party is thrown for him, a crown is put on his head, a robe on his back. Why? Because of grace. That's what grace does. Grace is paying the guys who worked for a few hours the same amount you pay the guys who worked all day long. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It can't be calculated because grace is not a wage, right? Salvation is not a reward, a payment. It's grace. It's undeserved. Grace is what happened to the thief on the cross. Think about that guy. He never had to go to church one time, and he was saved. He never had to put any money in the plate. He never had to volunteer for VBS. He never did anything good in his life. All he said was, please, God, you're good. And remember me when you get to that place, that's gonna be so good. And Jesus said, I will. Why? Because of grace. 
He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair, but that's the point. That's grace. I love this quote. It says this, love that goes outward is service or affection. Love that goes upward is worship and adoration. But love that stoops down, that's grace. Everybody say stoops down. That's what God had to do to love you. He had to stoop down. He had to come to where you were because you were dead and gone. And he had to come to you and he loved you. I'm just not sure that we get it, though, because nothing in life revolves around grace, right? Nothing in this world has this grace principle with it, let alone no other world religion. I mean, every other world religion operates underneath the opposite of the principle of grace, right? From the Buddhist eightfold path to the Hindu doctrine of karma to the Jewish covenant to the Muslim code of the law, every other religion teaches you have to earn the approval of others, and you got to prove yourself, For God or the gods or the universe or the spirit or whatever it is that's out there to be pleased with you, you have to please them. You have to pacify them. And if you're a Hindu, it's going to take at least 586 reincarnations to do that. You got to do your part. However long, however hard it is, however many hoops you got to jump through, you got to do your part, and then maybe the gods will do their part. That's not true with us, that's not true with grace. We don't get it because we are good. We get it because God is so good. Everybody say amen to that. We don't get it because we earned it, because we're worthy of it, because we deserve it, because we jumped through the hoops, because we met 586 requirements. We get it because God wanted to give it. That's the only reason we have it. All other religions make a big deal out of what you were supposed to do, and thus they revolve around guilt. You better or else not Christianity, not grace. It's all about what God has done. It's not built on guilt, it's built on grace. And it says God saves you and no one else can. And to be honest with you though, it's hard for us to fathom this, isn't it? It's hard for us to grasp this. It's hard for us to get it and be changed by it. I mean, especially sitting in an air-conditioned auditorium in a nice padded seat, right? Grace is best understood. Grace is truly appreciated when you're lying face down in the gutter. Let me show you what I mean. Maybe this story will resonate with some of us. There's a story in Scripture in Genesis 38. It's honestly one of the most bizarre stories in all the Bible. Don't read it at night with your kids in the room, all right? Just, just forewarning. It's just strange, and there's odd, and there's these sexual innuendos and, and language in there, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let me give you a little unpacking of this story, a little, um, little insight into it. There's a guy named Jacob, okay, whose name is later changed to Israel, And Israel has 12 kids. Now, why is that a big deal? Because those 12 kids become who? The 12 tribes of Israel. It's weird to call, you know, my two girls, the two tribes of Fitzpatrick, but that's kind of how that worked, right? He had 12 kids, so there's 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of those 12, one of the boys was named Judah. Judah has a rough go in this life. He lusts after a Canaanite woman, a certain type of of woman in that day, and that's a big no-no in the Bible. Well, wouldn't you know, he goes further than that. He actually sleeps with this woman. That's a bigger no-no. So Judah and this Canaanite woman end up having three kids together. The first is named Ur. Ur follows in his dad's footsteps, and he marries another Canaanite woman and disobeys the Lord. That woman is named Tamar. Well, Ur does what's wicked, like I said, and so uh, the Lord takes his life from him. So Tamar is now a widow, and she hasn't had any kids yet with Ur. And being a widow and and childless in that day and age was not a good combination. 
And so Judah, her father-in-law, comes to her and says, hey, why don't you marry my second son? He's already married, but you can go ahead and marry him as well, and then you guys can have children together. So she does. She marries the second son, but he refuses to impregnate her, and so his life is taken from him. So now Tamar, twice widowed, still childless, and now really without any help. So Judah comes to her a third time, or I guess a second time now, and he says, hey, why don't you wait for my third son? I've got another one coming. Let's just try this thing again, right? Three strikes, then you're out. She says, no, I'm out right now. God keeps killing off your loser sons, and I'm out. I don't want any more part of this family. All right, fast forward a few years. Judah is strolling through the streets of a certain village, and he sees a prostitute. Well, being the moral man that he is, he sleeps with the prostitute. Uh, Come to find out, the prostitute wasn't just any old prostitute. Guess what? It was his former daughter-in-law, Tamar. And not only that, she ends up having twins from that little one-night stand, Perez and Zara. All right, now, why in the world would I bring any of this up? Why, why, why would I connect this to our numbers 2, 4, and 2, 5? What does this have to do with grace? Well, it has everything to do with grace. See, Preston Sprinkle, a professor of theology, says it's a weird story, but it's one about the scandalous nature of God's grace. You see, Judah's story is Genesis 38. Genesis 37 is the story of Joseph. Genesis 39 through 50 is more of the story of Joseph. And if we know anything about the story of Joseph, it's a good story, is it not? He's a good man. He's a godly man. He runs when he's tempted sexually. He does everything by the book. And so it seems weird that Judah's story, Joseph's brother, is right in the middle of his story, and it kind of interrupts the story. It's like, don't tell me about Judah right now. That's ugly. That's gross. Delete that from the Bible. Just have Genesis be a story of Joseph. Don't tell me about Judah It seems weird that Judah gets any airtime. And so if you were God, if you had the choice, who would you exalt? Who would you make the hero? If if you would choose one of those two men to do something great, who would it be? Who would you want associated with you and your story and your name and your future son, your one and only son? Who would you want? Judah? Would you want Judah to be a part of the equation anymore? No. Judah's that awkward family member that that we hope doesn't show up to the picnic, right? Like Judah's the guy we don't send the Christmas card to anymore. Judah's that cousin that we just like, oh, great, he's here. That's Judah. And yet God exalts him. Look at how Jesus is described in one of his most glorious moments, Revelation 5.5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now don't miss this. Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of, and we want to be like, what? Judah? You mean the Judah I was just talking about? The Judah that did this and slept with her and impregnated his own former daughter-in-law? That Judah? Yeah. Jesus is connected to Judah. If Jesus were to print off for you his Ancestry.com report, guess how it would read? It would show you Jesus literally comes through the family line of Perez. You remember that name? Perez is the illegitimate son of a prostitute who had a one-night stand with her godless ex-father-in-law. You thought your family was messed up. (laughs) Not compared to Jesus. So why does God do that? Why doesn't God make Jesus from the lion of the tribe of Joseph? 
Because Joseph is godly and Joseph is good and we want to follow and be like Joseph. Why would he connect him forever to Judah? Because it's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. And Judah's story, even though it was so broken and so twisted, that wasn't the end of his story. And the same is true for you. I don't care how broken or how twisted or how messed up things have been in your life. Your story is not over. Your worst parts are not your only parts. In fact, there's a much better part coming in your story. And God proves to us that if he can save Judah, if he can redeem Judah, if he can show grace to Judah, man, he could do any of that for all of us. Amen? Grace is all about God and his goodness, not you and your lack thereof. Grace is all about God's ability to save sinners, not just his ability to save sinners, God's delight, his incessant delight to save the worst of singers. Sing, singers, yeah, those two, but sinners. Right, it's like God has the desire to stand on the back of the Jerry Springer show, like behind the curtain, and just say, you guys are perfect, come on in. God loves that type of person. Grace is this incredible kindness of God to look past, to look beyond, to look deeper than our mess-ups, our mistakes, our addictions, our attitude. And he loves and he blesses us anyway. That's grace, guys. That's how big grace is. That's how far grace will go. That's how messy grace is willing to get. And the fact that grace is a part of our story should shock us just as much as it does when we hear that grace is a part of Judah's story. Because according to 2.4 and 2.5, this is bad news, but you have to hear it. You and I are just like Judah. You and I are just like Judah, man. Just like Judah, we tend to make a mess of things, don't we? Just like Judah, we tend to hurt other people or allow other people to hurt themselves and we don't step in. Just like Judah, we allow passions and desires to cloud our minds and mess up our judgment. Just like Judah, we don't follow through on the responsibilities that are ours. Just like Judah, we disregard God. We have no regard for his consequences. We're just like Judah. And some of us are more okay with that than others, right? Some of us are more willing to accept that than others. I say, we're broken, we're messed up, we're all so flawed. Deep within, it gets worse than you think. Some of us are like, amen, brother. Like, if you saw me in my life, it wouldn't be hard to tell I'm just like Judah. And for some reason, you have to have a southern accent when you say it, too. But others of us, when I say you're just like Judah, it's kind of like, you know what, man? Don't you say, I'm not that bad off. Two, four, and two, five. You're dead in your sins. You don't need a little cleanup. You need Christ. You need to be redeemed, resurrected, revived because you are roadkill. We are just like Judah. And when you admit that, when you admit the bad part of your association with Judah, then you can grab a hold of the beautiful part and say, you know what? But I'm also just like Judah. I'm saved by grace. I'm also just like Judah because God ain't done with me yet. I'm also just like Judah because that part of my story, God's going to rewrite and redeem and make a big part of his story. You with me? I'm just like Judah over here. Gosh, I wasn't like Judah, but I'm just like Judah. Because Jesus is a part of the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is connected to Judah, and that changes everything. And when Jesus is connected to us, that changes everything, doesn't it? You see, you're dead here, but Jesus is alive. And so when, when you connect yourself to Christ, you are alive. You are broken and messed up and flawed. Jesus is perfect and sinless. So when you connect yourself to him, you are what he is. You are saved by grace. This crazy grace that the God of the universe would look at us, the Judas of the world, and be like, you're perfect. You're perfect. What? So I want you to stop thinking this morning. Okay, stop thinking that you're too messed up to be a part of God's family. Stop thinking that, that you're too sinful to not receive God's love, like you're unworthy of it. Stop thinking that. 
Stop thinking that God only loves you when you love him in return. Or God only is pleased with you when you prove yourself to him and spend all his time in prayer and spiritual disciplines. Stop thinking that God's pleasure of you is based on your performance for him. Stop thinking all of that. Everybody say, stop thinking. Stop thinking that stuff. Because it's just not true. You aren't saved because you're like Joseph. You aren't even saved because you're like Jesus. You're saved because you need to be saved because you're just like Judah. You aren't promised heaven because you earned it or deserved it or worthy of it. You're promised heaven because God really wants you there. You aren't alive right now because you're better off than everybody else and deserve to be. You're alive because God wants you to be alive now and forever. That's grace, church. That's our word. That's our faith. That's our God. That's grace. And the amazing thing about it, another amazing thing about it is how you get it, how you receive it. Look at the text with me. Ephesians 2.8 says it, right? You are saved by his grace when you believed. 2.8, couldn't say it any more clearly. You are saved by his grace when you believed. I love what Jesus says in John 6.29. Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to jump through all kinds of hoops and prove yourself worthy. The work of God is this, to be more spiritual than everybody else around you. The work of God is this, to act like you got everything together when everything's falling apart. The work of God is this, to jump through all these religious hoops and to, to make all these moves and to show that you get it. No, the work of God is this, just believe it. Just believe it to be true. That's what a graceful God does. Right, the work of God is that you have nothing else to offer. You have nothing to do. You are dead, so just believe it. Believe that this isn't too good to be true. Believe that God is so good, this has to be true. Believe that God is so good, this is true. Just believe. Just believe it. That's all you have to do to be, to be saved. I, I shared a story with you before, but I'll close with it. We were eating at a little restaurant in Nashville one time, and... Um, the waitress brought out this huge bowl full of grits during the meal. Any grit lovers out there? Okay, let's pray for you. I'll bring you up here. Let's lay hands on you. She brings this huge bowl of grits, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't order any grits. And she looks at me, and she says, son, this is Tennessee. You don't order grits. You just get grits. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's how it is with God's grace. You see, you don't, you don't order it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. You're not worthy of it. When you believe in Christ, you just get it. You just get it. It just comes. All you got to do is believe. That's it. So call a sub sandwich a grinder. Seems weird. Call a ski cap a toboggan. Odd. But there's only one thing you can call God's love for you. There's only one thing you can call the fact that God has been merciful to you and extended this kindness to you. There's only one thing you can call the fact that we were dead, but now we are alive forever. There's only one word for that. I don't care what climate you're in, what culture you're in, what country you're in. There's one word for that. In church, the word is grace. Say it with me now. Grace. Grace. You are saved by grace. Never lose sight of how amazing grace is truly is. Let me pray that over you. We'll get you out of here. God, you are an incredible God. We could just probably spend a few minutes right now just listing off why and what that means to us, but right now we're really just mindful of your great grace. It's interesting, Lord, in this book, in Ephesians, the first chapter is filled with this beautiful description of, of the blessings that we have in you, the rights that we have as believers. We are now sons and daughters of, of you, 
We went from alone and abandoned out in the street to being adopted by the king. We are empowered with your spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in those who are Christians. It says, God, that we have all these spiritual blessings, that we are loved by you. And then chapter two comes, and the text we just read comes. And I wonder, Lord, if the Ephesian church wasn't thinking, oh, I've been adopted by you, I'm loved by you, I've been gifted and empowered by you, because I'm pretty special. Because look at me, I mean, I'm pretty easy to love, and I'm a pretty good guy. And so I wonder if chapter two comes as a response to that. I wonder if you're telling the Ephesian church and this church, you're not saved because you're better than everybody else. You're saved because you're so so much worse than everybody else. You needed to be saved. You couldn't do anything on your own. And so I pray that we have a spirit of humility, God, a spirit of honesty in this church, and that we just stand amazed at your grace. Help us to see ourselves like Judah. Help us to see ourselves like the prodigal son. Help us to see ourselves like the bleeding woman, like the leper. Help us to see ourselves like them and not the religious elite. Help us to see that we so desperately needed you to come. And had you not come, we would be dead now and forever. But you came. You came and you saved us. You came and you cleansed us. You came and you helped us. You came and you blessed us. You came. You came for us, God. You're so good and we are so not. But that's okay. That's, that's why there's grace. I pray this church is always known for being a grace-based church, for being so graceful and so grace-oriented. Please make it so. May grace change our hearts and minds right now. May it flood into our families, into our neighborhoods. May we spread the good news of the numbers 2, 4, and 2, 5. Although we were this, you are so much better. Although we were dead, we are now alive. Help us to never forget that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, church, a few things. Don't forget, tonight, we've got a couple of huge announcements. Uh, The Jamboree. This is how we celebrate uh, kind of mid-summer as well as the end of VBS. So it is a huge uh, hoedown of sorts, kind of a, a country-themed party. So dress up really silly, dress up really stupid. In other words, dress up like a Texan. Okay, that's what we want you to do tonight. Uh, bring your best gear. Some swimsuits would be good for the kids. We've got water slides. We're going to have pony rides. We're going to have a petting zoo. There's a dunk tank that some of the pastors are going to sit in for a while. There's a ton of food. What would you say, 56 quarts or something crazy. We're going to have barbecue out there. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds of beef. You're not going to want to miss it. Tickets are on sale this morning. Uh, They'll also be at sale, uh, on sale at the door. So if you could also invite somebody with you tonight, this is a great way to introduce them to our community, to our church, to our staff, uh, to the great group that we have here at the church. So tonight, five o'clock out on the West Field, the Lord just put a perfect day together, 85 degrees, no chance of showers. Come on, it's gonna be a great night. If something goes crazy and Satan gets a hold of the weather and, and we have to move inside, then we'll do that, okay? If Colorado turns Colorado on us, then we will uh, we'll go inside the gym, but we're gonna do the event no matter what. So join us tonight, five o'clock for the hoedown. It's gonna be a great time. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you all being here. God bless you.